Welcome back to Learning from a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen, joined again by most of the crew. So, uh, you, uh, Cameron's back. Hi, Cameron. Hi, waving. Waving doesn't help in an, uh, po- a podcast. <laughs> Insufficient. Uh, well, yeah, Cameron, I'm sorry wait. about that. There we go. I am um, here. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Matt, you're back. Welcome back, Matt. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes. Matt uh, contributes on a lot of our mathematical podcasts. Tim was on until the moment that we started the podcast and then jumped off. So um, that's about as much as he was going to contribute to tonight's podcast. Anyway, so uh, in, uh, this podcast will be about satellites. So we're going to talk about um, satellite structures and all kinds of uh, satellite-related topics, and Matt is going to enlighten us on all of those things. So, Matt, will you tell us a little bit about satellites? Uh, A very little bit. So, you may be sitting there thinking, gee, I wish I could put a satellite into orbit, but there's, you know, you don't know how to go about building it or what it's going to do or how you're going to launch the thing. Um, You know, how are you going to get your own personal satellite up there in space? And have it survive long enough to do anything worth doing. Um, turns out that putting a object on orbit and having it function successfully is not the easiest thing in the world. And there are a number of major factors that go into a satellite's design. And so we will talk about some of those basic things at a very basic level, giving you just enough knowledge to want to, well, to be... Um, Hopefully not enough knowledge to be dangerous. Well, you can probably do some good, uh, some good work in Kerbal Space Program, but uh, yeah, anyway. Okay. All right. So the first, you know, we'll, we'll talk about uh, a number of different things here. We'll talk about, you know, what satellite missions there are and that there can be, and then how the mission influences how you build and design your satellite. And we'll, we'll focus mostly on uh, some of the, the factors that go into engineering and design of a satellite. Uh, now, when we talk about satellites, we're talking about artificial man-made objects that we're going to throw in orbit around the Earth, mostly. I mean, you can, if you feel like putting a satellite around Mars or the moon or titan or whatever that's up to you but we're we're going to kind of hang around earth for the purposes of our discussion today that's a good plan so the first question that you want to ask yourself is what do i want my satellite to do and that will dictate one of about six major factors that we're going to talk about we're going to talk about payload structure power telemetry tracking and control thermal control, and then attitude and position control. Um, and, and, you know, that last one we might split up a little bit. But the first one that you want to th- think about is the payload. And the payload is whatever chunk of gear that, y- that you want to put in space to accomplish whatever your purpose is. So if you want to have pictures of the Earth, then your payload is going to be a camera. If you want to be able to beam signals from one place on Earth to around the world, 
then your payload is going to be a radio transponder. If you want to put up a navigation constellation of satellites, then your payload is going to be, well, really another radio transponder just sitting up there and, and sending out radio pings every now and then. Uh, but the payload is the thing that dictates your mission and it really drives the rest of your satellite's design. It also tends to drive the orbit that you put your satellite in, and we will refer you to our previous podcast on the basics of orbital dynamics, or, well, rocket science, if you want to learn more about orbits. Now, before you move on, I don't know if you're going to keep talking about payloads, but one of the more well-known layman payloads recently was that Tesla that Elon Musk put into orbit, right? Uh, yeah. Um, so for the layman who is not a bazillionaire with more money than he knows what to do with, <laughs> if you're putting a satellite up there, chances are you, you, you've got like one shot and you want this thing to be effective. Now, Elon, if you're listening, it's fine if you want to flex by throwing cars into orbit, but I do wonder what the point of that thing is. It's not up there actually accomplishing much of a, you know, contributory mission toward science or defense or the betterment of mankind, other than the fact that, yeah, we put a car in space. Yeah, publicity. Yeah. Publicity. Yeah. And it turns out that if your satellite is simply a car, and the purpose of your satellite is car in space, well, the rest of the considerations for your satellite really become very simple. You don't need to worry about thermal. You don't need to worry about power. You don't need to worry about mission duration or uh, attitude or control or position control because that's irrelevant to your mission. Your mission is car in space. Now, let's look at one of uh, Mr. Musk's more practical satellites and, and actually one of the uh, payloads that you know that this goes back to actually the very first satellite ever launched Sputnik uh, had a radio transponder on board for communications and Sputnik all it did was send out a ping that basically said yep I'm alive now those communication satellites have evolved to the point where now we can send signals from the ground up to the satellite, bounce it to another satellite, bounce it to another satellite, and bounce it back down to the ground halfway around the world. And you can communicate from any place on the globe to any other place on the globe uh, at the speed of light, which is pretty cool. So, you know, for the purposes of our discussion, let's say you have a communications payload. Uh, it's a little radio with an antenna that can receive signals from somewhere and another antenna that can transmit signals to somewhere else. And that's your payload. Yay. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. So uh, are, are you done with your satellite at this point? Uh, no. No. Well, you've got your transponder. It turns out. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Cameron. I am because I wanted to be the evil dictator that threw some kind of rod up in space like Cobra did in G.I. Joe. Yes. <laughs> Carl, please cut that. <laughs> <laughs> Movie references are what we're known for, Matt. So, uh, 
That's right. Well, that, yeah, documentary. international treaties that come into play if you want to go that route, but we don't want to go that route. We want to go to the route of an informative podcast. So, Tim, you have a radio frequency transponder, and you're ready to send it into orbit, kind of. What what would you need to do to prepare this thing to survive in orbit? It's sitting there on your desk. What do you need to do with it? I assume you need a power source. You do need a power source. Turns out radios do not work very well without electricity. <laughs> and so that's uh, the the next the first factor. After you've determined your payload, uh, really the next thing that comes into play generally is power. And it all comes down to how much power I'm going to need. And this drives kind of two things. Uh, one, you need to know how much power do you need to generate at a given moment? How many watts is your payload going to consume? And that's going to tell you, first off, what kind of battery you need and how big of a battery. Uh, because, to, you know, you think of a satellite, it's floating there in space. Does it have power all the time coming into it? Most satellites get their power through solar panels, right? Yeah. And as long as the sun is shining, you can get some amount of wattage through your solar panels. Yes? Uh, yes. Well, no. if you're not eclipsed by the Earth, right? Uh -huh. And you definitely, probably, will be eclipsed by the Earth, depending on your orbit, uh, depending on how far from the Earth you are. Um, in general... Yours, well, it really depends on, on where you are and what you're doing. Uh, communication satellites that live out in the geosynchronous belt, again, see our previous podcast, are 20-some-odd thousand miles from the Earth. They don't get eclipsed very much. And so you can count on a more steady power supply. And so your battery, you know, is sized accordingly. Now, the Starlink satellites that SpaceX is doing uh, to provide Internet everywhere, those are in low Earth orbit. They're very close to the Earth. They're at an altitude of, I don't know, a few hundred kilometers. Um, they're in eclipse about half the time. And so they are on battery power about half the time. And so, you know, that's part of the consideration of your power system. What size of solar panel do I need to generate enough power to charge my battery sufficient that it can provide constant power to my payload, whatever my payload is. And, you know, a, a radio frequency transponder that's close to the earth, it needs an amount of power. Uh, that same transponder far away from the Earth, in geosynchronous orbit, for example, would need about four times as much power, uh, depending on, actually, no, more than that. It would, uh, power changes with uh, the square of the distance, so you could need significantly more power out of geo. But anyway, that's, that's kind of the first consideration. How much power does your payload need? And with that, how much solar panel functionality, and how much battery do I need to keep that thing going? So you figured that out. You have a bunch of batteries now sitting on your desk next to this radio transponder, and you have them wired up to a bunch of solar panels. 
And then, now what? Uh, the rocket is sitting there on the pad waiting for you to just chuck this thing on the top of it. You good to go? Uh, you probably need something to protect it from hot and cold. Ooh, thermal controls. Uh, yes, you very much do. Turns out that space is um, pretty extreme when it comes to temperatures. The same satellite can have temperature variances between the side that's facing the sun and the side that is facing away from the sun that are many degrees, like hundreds of degrees Celsius. You can have one part of your satellite be absolutely frozen while the other part is boiling. And so you need a thermal management system to keep your satellite and keep its payload intact. Now, when your satellite is in eclipse, that's generally where the whole thing gets very, very cold. And so oftentimes a satellite will come with a heater to keep the payload warm. When it's on the sun side and is getting blasted by raw sunlight, well, your satellite can very quickly bake to death. Uh, and you need some way to radiate that heat away. And so satellites often come with radiators that they put on the dark side, the back side, to help radiate that heat away. Is that a problem in in the, the you know space where, as I understand it, don't uh, objects in space have a hard time radiating heat because there's no uh, medium to be radiated into? Kind of. Um, I think we did talk about the basics of thermodynamics. There's really two ways to transfer heat. There is pure radiation, which is how satellites absorb heat and how they get rid of heat. And then there is heat transfer through contact with something else, uh, convection or, or, or contact. Um, you know, convection is contact with some kind of fluid like air. Well, it turns out in space, there's not much of that. And so, yes, your only heat transfer mechanism is pure radiation, and it is the least effective heat transfer mechanism. So it is very difficult to have a satellite radiate heat away. Uh, and it turns out the sun is, is, well, the sun cares not that radiation is the least effective heat transfer mechanism. It is generating so much radiation that it doesn't matter. Um, and, and all of these thermal considerations are why, when you look at a picture of a spacecraft, it generally looks uh, very shiny and sparkly and often gold. And, and it's, uh, many parts of it are often, they look like they're covered in a metal foil. Well, that foil is just a reflective, well, foil. And it's designed to bounce radiation away from the satellite, reflect it, prevent the satellite body from absorbing that incoming heat. Uh, and satellites can get more or less complex with their thermal controls. You can have louvered surfaces on your satellite where um, you, know, you have a circle with uh, slits cut in it and it will rotate to allow 
a non-reflective surface to absorb heat when needed, and then it will rotate again so that the slits change orientation, cover up those absorptive surfaces, and only leave reflective surfaces showing so that the satellite becomes more reflective and absorbs less heat. Um, hey, Matt, so you're yeah. all about heat right now, but aren't there other things, uh, forces, uh, charges being radiated by the sun that could pos possibly damage your your satellite, like uh, electromagnetic forces? Um, yes, uh, let's talk about that soon. Okay. Okay, so at this point, though, your, your satellite payload is sitting on your desk. There's some batteries sitting next to the payload. There's some solar panels flopping around, and you have a wad of reflective foil and, and maybe a radiator and and some other stuff. Uh, you, are you ready to throw this thing on top of a rocket now? Um, so once again, we're not going with Cameron's movie reference, the G.I. Joe thing. Uh, even that thing needed more than than where you're at. <laughs> uh, no, I'm guessing that there's probably more involved, though I can't imagine what it would be. Well, maybe uh, you you might consider putting some kind of structure together to tie all those pieces together um, to house them. And so you know, the structure would be the next factor to consider in the design. And and it really is just the box that you put it in, and it are, and that you attach things to. And there are a number of considerations for what you want to have in your satellite structure, but you know some of the some of the basic ones. Touching on thermal control, uh, your thermal control system is good, but you want your structure to be able to withstand some of those temperature extremes. Um, there is such a thing as cold welding where metals can literally stick themselves together just by contact if, uh, if they become too cold. And so your thermal system needs to provide appropriate temperature for the joints but also, you need to engineer the structure and those joints such that any parts that aren't thermally controlled are not going to cold weld themselves. So that's um, kind of like the uh, tongue on the flagpole situation. Yeah. So sort of. That. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah. Hmm. That's uh, not an image I would have used, but close <laughs> enough. Yes. Perfect. Uh, the other thing that the structure does is provide some level of protection against all of the stuff that is floating around up there. Now, a lot of people worry about space junk, and that's the thing. It turns out that man-made space junk is just a portion of all of the objects that you find zipping around in space. And keep in mind, when you're in orbit, you're at you know ground speed numbers that are in the teens when it comes to Mach speed, Mach 15, 16, 20, you're going pretty quick. Um, if you have two objects collide, you can get closing speeds upward of Mach 20. Uh, that's phenomenally fast, and oftentimes satellites don't survive such collisions. Um, but you do get 
other things, micrometeoroids and, and all of these things can bump into you. Your structure needs to be able to provide some level of ballistic protection um, in case something whacks into it. Um, sorry, go ahead. Question? I was going to say that sounds uh, challenging it, given the speeds you've got involved, right? Like this has to be quite thick or and or strong, which would then make it difficult to launch into space because of the, the weight involved? Yeah. In general, you're not going to engineer yourself a bulletproof satellite. You're going to engineer a satellite that will be able to withstand such and such an impact at such and such a speed with such and such mass of projectile, you know, something on the order of grams. Uh, basically, you okay. don't want your satellite to get shredded by space dust. Anything okay. much larger than that, yeah, you're out of luck unless you're, well, I mean, even the Tesla that you chucked into space, that would very quickly be perforated by some of these objects. You start to put a space tank up there, maybe you'll survive, but that does become a little bit impractical in terms of the weight and so forth. Yes, I'd imagine so. Yeah. So is, uh, along the well, idea, the, oh, go ahead, Cameron. Out there that could move the satellite. Yeah, yeah. If you have uh, gotten to the next factor of positioning control, which we haven't yet, but um, you know, let's actually let let's hit really quick some of the radiation things uh, because structure is as good a place to talk about that as any 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 of the electronics and and equipment that you have on the satellite is going to need to be what we call hardened, sufficient that it will survive in that well, stellar environment. Turns out, sitting here on planet Earth, we're protected from a lot of very harmful, very high energy, very destructive radiation. And we're protected by Earth's atmosphere and Earth's magnetosphere. Well, when you leave the atmosphere and when you're zipping around the magnetosphere, sometimes in it, sometimes out of it, you don't have a lot of that protection. And so your electronics can be disrupted or corrupted or just flat out fried by cosmic radiation if they are not sufficiently hardened. Uh, and, and when you go to your local electronics store to buy parts, you're gonna find two bins of electronics parts. You're gonna find the bin for every terrestrial application that a sane person would would want to buy electronics for, you know, your Xbox, your refrigerator, your TV. And then you'll find another bin of electronics parts for the lunatics that are putting things in space. Turns out the space bin is significantly more expensive. So yeah, you, you have uh, your regular electronics and then you have spacecraft quality hardened electronics and there are different levels of hardening because depending on where you are in space you're exposed to different levels of radiation turns out that the earth is surrounded by two very large donuts of charged particles uh, called the van allen radiation belts these are not good places for a satellite to live your satellite will slowly degrade and die because of the ionizing radiation. And so, and, and those belts, um, 
they live at oh, a couple thousand kilometers to something like 15, 16,000, 18, I don't know. They're, they're, they're very large, and they're in the band that we call medium Earth orbit. Well, you don't find a lot of satellites in medium Earth orbit except for GPS. GPS, the entire constellation, lives in medium Earth orbit because that's the ideal position for the GPS payload. And in order to survive up there, all of the GPS spacecraft are, well, they're very, very hardened. And they still have a limited design life. Um, they will, their electronics will be degraded and decay over time and they will eventually die. But all of those satellites have enough hardening that they can survive for however many decades they need to to fulfill their mission. Uh, a satellite doing a similar type of mission in geosynchronous orbit or in low Earth orbit would not need the same amount of hardening because they aren't exposed to the same constant radiation environment. So some of the things that we talked about so far sound pretty layman to some extent as far as like some... Yeah, it turns know, out building a satellite is really quite simple. Well, <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. But you just can the buy idea a that, kit online for a hundred bucks. That will, be, that will actually build you a satellite? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, universities do this in the classrooms. Now, if you want to launch the thing into orbit, well, you're going to need to contract with that. And on the low end, you're looking at $5 million. (laughs) On the high end, you're looking at, um, what is the cost of, well, take your $5 million and add multiple zeros to it. (laughs) That's a lot. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that's not like a, a thing that, but besides the money, like you can't just, it's not like people are launching satellites all over the place. It's not like some, there's some site where you can sign up to launch your satellite into space, right? Well, it depends on who you are. If you are Iran, uh, you can do what you want, but we'll get into that when we're done talking about the, your satellite design. Okay. Right. Um, right now, you have a box, you have a structure, you've appropriately shielded your electronics, you have a payload, you have your power supply and your batteries, you have your thermal blankets to provide insulation and reflection as appropriate, uh, and your satellite is now ready to go? Yes. No. So- Huh. Foolish layman. <laughs> no, no, we need to be able to control the satellite. You definitely need to be able to control the satellite. And that's the next part. Um, regardless of what your satellite's payload is, even if it's comms bird, it's going to need another radio on board so that it can receive instructions from the ground station and so that it can communicate back to its ground station. Uh, communicate system health, communicate its position, communicate data on its mission, its functionality, all of these things that you need to know if you're going to operate this thing. Uh, In general, this is called telemetry tracking and control, or TTNC. 
and it is generally a pretty simple radio system system excuse me with an antenna a transponder and then it's wired into the satellite's main computer that receives health data and, and all of these other things um, and so this is kind of the next system that you need is your command and control your telemetry and tracking system uh, once you've got that on there are you ready to go i keep saying yes but i keep being wrong so yeah I there's something else we need but i don't know With your what, sentence, which way do you so, want your satellite to point North. If you if you have north, okay, good. <laughs> um, if you have a communication satellite, generally you want the antenna pointed at Earth, right? Uh, that'd be a good idea. Yeah, it would be a good idea. So the next thing that you need is an attitude control system or an ACS. Uh, this can be any number of things. This can be as simple as a long extendable pole with a weight on the end that is you know, based on Earth's gravitational field, that pole will be pulled earthward down and that will orient your satellite. Yay. Um, it can be as complex as having thrusters mounted on the different corners of your satellite to uh, fire off in opposed manners that create rotation. Um, or you can have what we call reaction wheels where uh, if, if you spin a wheel inside your satellite, it uh, turns out the satellite will spin in the opposite direction because of conservation of momentum and inertia. Uh, simply turning a wheel inside the satellite in some direction will move the whole frame of the satellite in the opposite direction. And if you have those wheels in a couple different axes, then you can have three-dimensional attitude control. Um, now, that goes back into some of your other considerations. Your structure has to be big enough to accommodate that. Uh, your power system has to be able to provide enough power for whatever system you've selected. Reaction wheels consume electricity that uh, you know a weighted boom does not. Uh, thrusters don't necessarily consume electricity, but they do consume a finite supply of propellant. And so when you run out of that propellant, you run out of the ability to control the attitude of your satellite. Now, related to this, but different, is your position control. Um, attitude control does not necessarily have to consume propellant. This is just controlling where the satellite is pointing and you can do that with wheels and you can do that with the weighted boom or, or whatever um, but in order to control position you have to have a thruster and you have to expend mass and fuel so a lot of like shows show um people shutting doors and spacecrafts with wheels like they do in submarines so wouldn't that cause the spacecraft to move oh yeah it totally would okay if you're cranking a circle like that yeah there will be an opposed rotation now the amount of rotation depends on 
the relative mass of the thing rotating as compared to the rest of the satellite. So if you're in a large manned spacecraft, the amount of rotation that you get from, you know, winding a door shut is going to be next to negligible. But yeah, there will be something there. So that's blowing my mind right now, just thinking about that. So yeah. <laughs> um, so much in my life. Yeah. So many lies have been told about how space works. Star Trek. G.I. Joe. Anyway. Um, position control. This is putting thrusters on the outside of your satellite to make sure that you stay in the chunk of space that you want to be in. Sometimes you may not need uh, position control. If your mission life is on the order of months, uh, then you know you go up, you do your mission for as long as you can, and you deorbit and burn back into Earth. And that's the thing. Uh, many universities and small satellite builders have very short mission lives, uh, especially for experimental payloads and things like that. And they don't need to do much in the way of station keeping. They come down when they come down. Now, if I'm going to buy a multi-hundred million dollar satellite for communications and throw it out to geosynchronous orbit on a multi-hundred million dollar rocket, I'm going to want that thing to last a long time. And I'm going to want it to stay where I put it and keep its position. And so... I will put thrusters on it and I will put a large fuel tank on it so that it can maintain its position for decades. And and so and this again plays into some of your other factors. Power a little bit less. Generally we're talking about essentially mini rocket thrusters. Not necessarily um, they don't consume a lot of power to actuate. Um, but we are talking about things that influence your structure uh, and, and that are potentially going to make your satellite much bigger if you have a large fuel tank on board. That propellant generally needs to be held at a certain temperature, so that influences your thermal control system. And your command and control system is is made, needs to be able to activate and accommodate those positioning systems related if you want your satellite to hold position your satellite needs to know where it is and what orientation it's in and there's a couple different ways that you can do this um, some satellites uh, well the the classic one is to use a star tracker and this is just a camera on the satellite that's pointed out into space that looks at the star field and compares it with a known star map. And based on that comparison, the satellite can figure out where it is and what way it's pointed. And then it can make attitude and position corrections accordingly. Um, that, that's the very basic one is the star tracker. Uh, but after you've got all of those things together, you have your structure, you have your batteries, your solar panels, your thermal insulators, your mission payload, your um, attitude and position control systems, 
and then you have your telemetry and command and control systems, are you ready to launch this thing? Yes. Kind of. It depends on how much you care about being a good citizen of the international community. And this goes to your question about people just chucking things into space right, left, and center for, for you know, right. with, with no regulation or concern. Um, there actually are different bodies that do govern some of this. The International Telecommunications Union, or ITU, actually allocates slots in geosynchronous orbit and they divide them up by degrees or fractions of a degree or something and you register for a slot and there's probably something else already there but um, anyway you register for a slot and then you're given approval by this international organization to launch your satellite into that slot uh, now some nations care less for that kind of thing. North Korea routinely attempts to chuck things into orbit with varying degrees of success. Um, Iran recently launched a satellite into low Earth orbit and was all excited about it until they realized that it was tumbling in an uncontrolled manner. Now we talked about attitude control. That's making sure that your satellite is pointing the right way. If your attitude control is uh, non-functional or poor well your satellite is going to point every which way and at that point it becomes kind of hard to use um but anyway regardless uh, if you are a responsible member of the international community yeah there is coordination that you go through um sometimes at the international level to set these things up most nations regardless of the ITU, do have regulations about what you can fly where and what you can launch. The United States has a slew of regulations on what payloads you can put where and with whom you have to register and what fees you have to pay and all of these things. All right, so with that, you, you've built your communication satellite. You've registered with the ITU to put it up in wherever it's going. You've spent many millions of dollars for your launch vehicle are you now ready to check this thing up into space yes yeah actually at that point you, you pretty much are all right um now, it turns out that building a satellite is both very difficult and also pretty straightforward um, there are a number of gotchas, and, and I, I should explain, I am not and never have been a satellite engineer. I have never built a satellite. I never will build a satellite. I'm not that cool. Um, but if I was, you can start by going to, uh, you can do a Google search. There are companies that sell educational build-a-satellite kits. Uh, one that comes to mind is pumpkin uh and they're they're not a sponsor of this channel or anything but they could be but well, they could be uh they anything is possible um <laughs> but they do uh educational build a cubesat kits uh cubesat is a class of satellite that is measured in how many 
10 by 10 by 10 centimeter units it takes up. And you can build a 1U, 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters being 1U, you can build a 1U CubeSat using this little kit. And it will have all of the things that we talked about. It will have reaction wheels for attitude control. It will have uh, solar panels that you can not necessarily have uh, on wings, but that you can slap on the body of your little cube that will provide power hooked up to a battery, hooked up to a control module with an antenna, um, with appropriate thermal protections in place. And you can build for like a hundred bucks. Okay, I should check that. Now that that is what I heard it was. I have no idea what Pumpkin sells their satellites for, but it is affordable. It, it's meant to be an educational thing. Um, and theoretically, you could chuck one of these into space. Now, I think Pumpkin is, in particular, is more of a classroom demonstrator. I, I should stop talking about Pumpkin. Um, many of these are classroom demonstrators. They may not necessarily have like the structure that you need to survive in orbit for more than a few minutes. Um, I, I but have they're, a question. Yeah. About so we talked about payload. We talked about all that stuff, and then and then you said you slap it on a rocket and off it goes. Well, that slapping it on a rocket part sounds a bit complicated. Both how do you get it attached to the rocket such that it doesn't become di um, doesn't uh, unattach until it's supposed to. And, and when, how does that happen? How, when does the rocket deliver the payload and just leave it? Because the rocket's not going to be strapped to it in orbit, right? Well, I would say tune in next time for our podcast on the basics of orbital insertion. Um, All right. That's a whole different topic, huh? <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't have to be. Um, yeah, the interface between a satellite and a launch vehicle is not necessarily as simple as bolting it on there. Uh, in general, you have a separation system, and your rocket comes with its own degree of specifications. Uh, any rocket that goes up is going to experience uh, some degree of shock, vibration, uh, maximum pressure, uh, maximum G-forces, um, and, and satellites that go up generally go through a torture test of, of stresses and strains to make sure that they're going to survive the ride to orbit. Um, a shock and vibe test, uh, shock and vibration. You bolt the satellite onto a vibrating table and you shake it for a long time. And if anything comes loose and rattles around... Well, you know that your structure is not up to snuff because your satellite will not survive the trip to orbit. Um, thermal vac is another test. They put the satellite in an oven, they suck the air out of it, and they crank the temperature up, and they bake it, and they make sure that the satellite can survive that environment. Um, there are a number of interfaces that you can get for your launch vehicle, depending on the size of your satellite and a number of other things. I mentioned CubeSats. There are different types of CubeSat dispensers that are pretty straightforward. And they are, in, in the overall scheme of the major mission, uh, they're controlled to release their CubeSat payloads 
at a specific time in flight. Uh, generally, if you're a CubeSat, you're not going to be the primary payload on a rocket. You're going to be one of many secondary payloads, and you're just hitching a ride into space, literally. Um, slightly larger satellites um, may fall into something called the ESPA class. These are satellites about the size of a mini-fridge, or around there. Um, the United States has designed something called an ESPA ring, which is a ring with six ports that you can put on some of the larger launch vehicles. Um, on top of the ring, you have your large payload, a GPS satellite, some other big thing, whether uh, a government mission or a large communications bird or whatever. And then around the base of this ring, you can have six other smaller mini-fridge satellites, and you can hitch a ride into space that way. And again, in the scheme of the overall mission plan, those secondary payloads will be jettisoned from the ESPA ring at the appropriate time in flight. Um, if you're a larger satellite, you know, the GPS thing that's the main ride, then yeah, you're going to have your own release system, and you may even have um, a uh, some kind of damper between you and the rocket. Uh, different systems exist to damp out some of that vibration, make the ride a little bit easier. Um, but all of them incorporate some kind of release mechanism where generally it's it's two rings, one bolted to the satellite, one bolted to the launch vehicle, and those two rings click together, and on the required signal, they click apart. And they're you know, spring-loaded so that they literally just blast each other apart. Not blast, but, you know, spring each other apart. Um, so, yeah, release mechanisms and, and ride share and all of that, that could be another topic. But, yeah, it's uh, a thing that the community has kind of uh, really standardized a lot of is how your satellites of different sizes would interface with different launch vehicles to get to wherever it is they need to go in orbit. Nice. So yeah, that could be the last piece is you need your your uh, interface and your release system after, well, and then you need to go through all of the qualification testing where you shake your satellite, you bake it, you put it in vacuum, put it in vacuum and bake it, uh, do all of those things, make sure it'll survive the flight, and then you're good to go. So I just did a quick look at Pumpkin Space. Mm -hmm. uh, depending on your kit, uh, they're starting to put between uh, $6,000 to $8,500. Okay. And then you can customize it up there anywhere. I'm guessing you can get to about a hundred thousand dollars for whatever you're putting in space. Yeah. I know they had some classroom kits where the body is, uh, you know, clear so that you can see all of the parts that you're assembling. I wouldn't launch that into space, but there it's pretty straightforward. It has all of the stuff that you need to do whatever you're doing. Okay, so a couple things to There's make this 
those companies. Sorry, go ahead, Carl. Well, I was going to put a bow on a couple of things. So, because I know that we've talked about how potentially Lehman putting a satellite into space could be, though I think we're probably uh, underselling how difficult it probably is in practice. But, well, in some ways at least. Um, but the, for the reason the layman would be interested in satellites, for many reasons, beside the fact of building one would be pretty cool, um, it's also the case that so much we do uh, in life now does, at, to some degree, depend on satellites. It's probably useful to know, uh, you know, how they got there, what they do, what lifespan is, what problems they're dealing with. Because I know that there's these articles I keep reading about, like, electrical storms disrupting satellites um, and how that's going to eventually happen and bring down cell networks. Is that a thing, Matt? Uh, I mean, yeah. So, the, the hmm. it, it, it depends. Um, we 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 do rely on satellites for a number of things. Telecommunications uh, is a big one. Many of your TV broadcasts, in fact, like almost all of them, bounce off a satellite at some point or other. Um, GPS does not just do navigation, it also does timing, uh, very precise timing. And many communications networks, including financial networks, um, anything from your credit card reader at your store to your ATM to all kinds of things, they all run, you know, the cell networks, they all depend on ultra-precise timing. Much of that does come from GPS or other sources. Now, most of these things are able to survive on a backup or with some period for some period of time if if that signal gets disrupted. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's a it's a thing, and that's part of why you know the GPS satellites they're not only hardened to withstand significant amounts of radiation, but we're also constantly launching them. Uh, the United States is, we didn't just put a GPS constellation on orbit and then walk away. Um, this was recognized as an enduring need. And so every year, a significant number of GPS satellites get shot into orbit to replace the old ones. And the plan is to do that forever because we're always going to need navigation and timing. Uh, you know, whether or not GPS satellites remain in the same form, those, those spacecraft in medium Earth orbit, whether or not they become, I don't know, smaller, faster, better, cheaper, you know, that, that's, I, I don't know, but that mission will continue. And they will continue to be replaced and updated and hardened so that their mission can endure. Yeah, so the and you see a lot of um, a lot of other nations have moved to provide their own uh, GPS-like systems. Uh, the European Union has one called Galileo. Uh, China has one. I forget what it's called. Uh, Russian Russia has one called GLONASS. And I think a couple other companies were looking at doing, um, if not global navigation and timing, 
at least regional navigation and timing. I think Japan actually put one up uh, that they could use. Okay, so, so essentially, yeah, you're saying that everyone is essentially, <clears throat> the, the satellite system is just continually getting better and improving such that we should be able to withstand disruptions to the system to some degree at least. Yeah, that would be the hope. All right. So, and then the other thing I think the layman needs to know before we sign off here is then the, what satellites are not capable of. of. So Cameron and I brought up well um, earlier uh, uh, in the pause in the podcast that we were the movie Geostorm. Right, Cameron. The uh, yes. What what's the the tent the idea behind Geostorm, Cameron? Uh, the idea is it's basically a giant web that goes around the Earth that controls the weather by manipulating something. Yeah, I like, forget. Doesn't it shoot like lasers at the Earth or something like that, and it controls weather in that way or something along those lines. Yeah. It, can heat and cool the weather patterns to normalize it out so you don't get crazy storms anymore. Right. And so the world becomes um, greener. Well, not seem practical at all. Yeah. I mean, outside of a number of, uh, you know, websites that I would call questionably credible, <laughs> uh, I'm not aware of anything about satellites shooting lasers at Earth to control weather. <laughs> So not yet is uh, what you're saying. Yeah, yes. well, okay. You want to talk about power systems. Um, and again, I will refer you to our Introduction to Lasers podcast that we did. Lasers slurp down a lot of power. Um, Weather-controlling lasers, if that, I don't even know what that would look like, but let's pretend that's a thing. You can imagine a weather-controlling laser would slurp down even more power. Um, solar panels, as cool as they are, are not known for providing large amounts of power. Uh, so, I mean, no. No, you can't do this. Not from a satellite. No. Okay, so the layman now understands that the that the potential documentary, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, Geostorm, is not fully accurate. Yeah, it joins the ranks of Back to the Future and disappointing Hollywood representations. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so that uh, gives you a good perspective, I think, on what satellites do and what they do not do. Um, so any other, uh, well, I guess before I give Matt any final word on satellites, I'd like to tell our users about our users. Once again, computer scientists. Um, Possibly listeners. Listeners is a better word for them. It uh, is. We have every state and territory in Australia that listen to us. Um, almost every province in Canada. So I guess I can call out the Yukonites or Yukonese. The Yukon Territory. All right, that's what we need here because we have the north, uh, we have the Northwest Territories and none of it that listen to us routinely now, but not the Yukon Yukonese. Is that Yukonites? Yukonites. All right. Well, we'll call them um, something. But uh, but yeah, we're uh, all 50 states in the United States, though Vermont is a bit reluctant. Maybe their uh, taste is. Um, 
slightly different than what we uh, serve up here at Learn It From a Layman. Um, we need to do more syrup-related podcasts. <laughs> By the way, yeah, Australia, the wombat is my second favorite animal. That's right. We have we have the moose is animals. not in the top five. <laughs> Sorry, Canada. Yeah, you're not earning us these you can eat euconites. Moose um, is in my top five. There we go. That's right. Cameron, right. nickname for those that are not aware. Uh, because it has not come in, pop, in a podcast before, I don't think. Cameron's po- uh, nickname is Moose. So I think that should earn us some Canadian listeners. Um, Many much Moose. Yeah. Um, okay, final words on satellites, Matt. Anything else about uh, satellite structure and or satellite no, missions? I think that this podcast has clearly and succinctly communicated all the knowledge needed for uh, somebody to go out and start satelliting. Yeah, so don't become North Korea. Don't launch them willy-nilly. But when you build your uh, satellite that you've learned how to build from Learn It From a Layman, register it with your local satellite registry system thing, and then pay your $5 million and launch it into space. <laughs> $5 million. <laughs> Or something. <laughs> Well, it depends. Some of those CubeSats can get rides that are in the hundreds of thousands. Hey, there uh, you go. So, so there yeah. is hope. <laughs> yep. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Matt, for the uh, insights into satellites. And uh, we will be back again soon with our new podcast. We'll talk to you then. Bye.